Welcome to the Kanoi Church Podcast. We're glad that you're interested in connecting through this teaching time. If you'd like to connect further, feel free to reach out to us through our website, kanoichurch.org. For now, enjoy this teaching from Kanoi Church, where our mission is to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. Good morning, church. Good, very good. We've had uh, two weeks off from our sermon series. Uh, last week we did Kingdom Day in the park, and we had um, estimates of about 1,000 people that came out to that service and then went and did service projects in the community. So it was a massive celebration of over a dozen churches in E-Town coming together, not only to worship in spirit and in truth, but also by the way that we use our hands in the community. So kind of amazing. Uh, The week before that, we did our Q&A Sunday, so we're back into our series today. Um, We're coming down to the end of our seven letters. Uh, This is, we're we're past the halfway point. Today, we're looking at Sardis, then we have Philadelphia, and then we have Laodicea, and we are done, so down to the end. Uh, We do have, I just remind everybody here, for the duration of the summer, the children are staying up here, so we're not dismissing them. Um, and, and as we're doing this series, one of the things that we want to pay close attention to, as you're listening, as you're praying during the service, as you're hearing God speak to your heart, what is it that God might be saying to our church, to our community? I mean, this series has been about seven churches in Asia, and there are letters written to each church and something very specific that Jesus is talking about with each church. What is it that Jesus might be saying to our church here today. So keep that in mind as we engage this passage this morning. I'm gonna start out by reading the passage, and then we're gonna get into, uh, actually, I'm gonna need a volunteer. Yeah, so the only volunteer, here's the only requirement. You can think about this while I read the scripture. The only requirement is that you like marshmallows, okay? That's the only requirement. Now, let's read the scripture, and then we'll come back to that. So we're in Revelation chapter 3 this morning, verse 1. It says this, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do and that you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly, as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my Father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Okay. Now I need a volunteer who doesn't mind marshmallows. I love it. Come on up. All right. Brought my bag here this morning. All right. I'm going to do this with you, so you're not alone in this, all right? And we need the help of the congregation. Here is our goal. We're each going to put a marshmallow in our mouth. And our goal is to make sure that you can't tell 
there's a marshmallow in our mouth. If you can't tell, give us a thumbs up. Then we'll add another marshmallow. And if you still can't tell, give us a thumbs up. And if you give us a thumbs up, we're gonna add another marshmallow, all right? And we'll see how long we can keep it so that you can't tell there's a marshmallow in our mouth. Sound good? That makes sense? I better take this off. applause. Thank you. <laughs> Anybody remember playing the game Chubby Bunny? Yeah? No? Chubby Bunny is a game where you put a marshmallow in your mouth and you have to say Chubby Bunny. And then if you can say it clearly and they can understand, you put another in until you can no longer say Chubby Bunny. Uh, fortunately, people choke when they play that game. So we weren't playing that game this morning. <laughs> There's a point to that, I promise. When I worked at Kembrook, um, people would say when I first went there, they would say, Kembrook is Lebanon's best kept secret. Kembrook is Lebanon's best kept secret. And for those of you who may not know, Kembrook is a, it's a summer camp, it's a conference center. And I would think to myself, you have 100 acres of property that is devoted to teaching young men and women about God. It's devoted to giving people their very first opportunity in ministry. It's devoted to being a safe place for churches to come and do a retreat at. It's a secret? Why? Why is that a secret? I mean, for the first year I was there, it was my goal to tell the secret to as many people as I could. I'd meet with the neighbors because I felt like the neighbors should know what their neighbor's doing. Why are we there? What's it about? I wanted to get involved with the Chamber of Commerce because the businesses in Lebanon should know that they have this resource that's nearby that's doing these things. I wanted to talk to people who used to be on staff there, who were donors, who had families that sent their kids there, and remind them what Kembrook is about. But still, it was often said, Kembrook is the best kept secret. I recently went to the beach with uh, my wife's family. And uh, a few years ago, we go to Rehoboth Beach, and a few years ago, uh, they made a new um, law or rule down there that if you are on the beach, you can't have a tent because it gets in the way of people being able to see the water. That makes sense. But when you have a whole bunch of little kids, it's really hard not to have something that shades you from the, from the sun. So we decided to find a new beach to go to. Now, I didn't go the last couple of years, but uh, my father-in-law found this beach. It was a, not a public beach. You had to pay like 10 bucks to get in, but 
There wasn't a lot of people. It had lifeguards, good waves, all of that. And I went down this year with them, and we got there, and it was packed. I mean, the parking lot filled up. I mean, places where you're supposed to drive in the parking lot, people parked in the parking lot because there were no spaces left. It was so full. And he looked at me and said, well, I guess the secret's out. It was so good. And I guess people just started talking. And I thought to myself, why is it that we think that the best things are secrets? Why do we say that? It's the best kept secret. I mean, how long do you think a restaurant would do well if it was the best kept secret? How, how many people would come to a church if it was always a secret? See, I think that you and I go to church week after week and we fill our mouths up with marshmallows. Mmm, Sunday school. Mmm, great worship. Mmm, a sermon that connected God and I together. Mmm, great fellowship. I love these people. And week after week, we fill our mouths up, and then we leave this place, and it's like we pretend or we're trying to pretend that there's nothing in our mouths. It's a secret. Why is that? You know, the worst thing, too, is that marshmallows are terrible for us. It's good that we didn't eat those this morning. They're awful. Lots of sugar, corn syrup, all sorts of stuff in there. It's bad. Don't eat those. But the stuff that we fill ourselves up with at church, it's good for us. It's really good for us. But sometimes we never even let it get past our mouths. We never digest it. We never actually consume it. We don't let it change our hearts. We don't let it change our lives. And we live in a culture that is so focused on consuming Get the next best thing, the next nicest car, the next nicest clothes or trend that's coming. Consume the next new phone, the next new iPad. Consume knowledge, degrees, education. It's all about what we can consume, and it's so easy for us as a church, as Christians, to fall into the same trap where we make our Sunday mornings all about what we can consume, what we can experience, what we can feel, and it never actually gets down into our heart and changes the way that we live or the way that we talk or the way that we treat each other because we are here for more than what you can consume. We're here for more than what you feel or what you experience. We are here for one another. We are a community. And what's more than that is that we are here for God. And we keep making it so that God can't get in. We inoculate ourselves to the gospel. We get just a little bit, just enough to make us feel like we're good. Church is more than just you. Church is more than just you. And if it bothers you to hear that, you're going to need to start bringing earplugs. Because I'm going to keep repeating it. Church is more than just you. I want to talk about Sardis this morning. This, this city in ancient Asia. I like when God adds emphasis to the sermon. That's, that's good. <laughs> All right, so Sardis, an ancient city in Asia. And what I want to do is I want to read a description by a guy named Les Painter. He wrote this description of what it might have been like to live in first century Asia. And it gives us a picture of, of what life could be like. And what I wanna invite you to do is I wanna invite you to close your eyes. If that helps you kind of picture things and imagine things, I invite you to close your eyes while you listen to this. He says, imagine what it would have been like to live at the end of the first century. Your city is part of the Roman Empire. You are a Christian. You're a member of a local church, and there is only one church in your city. 
Your nearest church neighbor is over 40 miles away. You could travel on your horse. You might reach your nearest neighbor in less than a day. Your leader is John the Apostle, but the rulers have exiled him to the island of Patmos. The reason was that he was a Christian. There are no large meetings where Christians worship together. There are no Christian books to encourage you. There is no New Testament to give you hope. There have been many earthquakes in your country. There have been many local wars. You are afraid about many things, and you wonder what will happen next. Your neighbors do not like you. You are different from them. You have a different religion. Every day you are in danger. You turn to other religious groups for help, but there's no help from them. They don't agree with your religion. In fact, they report you to the authorities. They say that you do not believe in God. The rulers of the nations don't feel confident. They think that other people want to become leaders. They fear that someone will replace them. They see other people as a danger to their authority. They make new laws. The nation has become their religion. Their leader, Caesar, has become their god. And moreover, he is the only one that you may worship. You ask yourselves whether you may one day bow down to some other god. It'd be so easy to do this. Some of your Christian brothers and sisters have already given up. They have turned away from Jesus Christ, their Lord. Hopefully that gives us a bit of a picture on what life may have been like in the first century. A picture of of how different it is from today, but how so many of the struggles would be similar. Feeling isolated, a lack of hope, neighbors that don't like you, other religions that seem to want to fight with you. The possibility of turning to some other God would just make it so easy, or maybe just turning your back on Jesus would make life easier. There are some things that stay consistent which is why studying these letters is so important. Sardis is known for a couple of things in history. The very first gold coins in history come from this city, okay? The richest man ever to live was a guy named Croesus, and he came from this city, and Croesus, it said, had a big palace in Sardis, and there was a river that ran through, and in that river were these massive gold deposits, and he would mine these things, and that's how he got his wealth. And, mythologically, they say that his dad was King Midas, and if you remember the stories about King Midas, everything he touched turned to gold, so supposedly he inherited quite a bit. Uh, maybe you've heard of Xerxes. Xerxes was a Persian king. He's mentioned in the Bible several times, mentioned in some movies recently too. He was a king and a warrior. Alexander the Great also hailed from Sardis. Sardis was a very wealthy city, incredibly wealthy, because um, it had this massive garment business, believe it or not. Garments can make you, I mean, if you're in the clothing business, it can make you pretty wealthy, pretty rich. And Sardis is known for this. Sardis had become so rich, it had become very lazy. And the Sardinians were lazy in all aspects of their life, not just in the way that they lived and acted and worked, but also in their spiritual lives as well. While Sardis was wealthy, its citizens depended on its past glory. At one point, Sardis was the capital of the Persian Empire. So you can imagine Washington, D.C. is the capital of our country. What if it no longer was? 
But the citizens there remember a time, a good day, when it used to be. And there was still some wealth and some businesses that existed in that city because at one point it was the center of trade and of, of the presidency and of our nation. But it's not there anymore. That's what Sardis was like. Scholars say that no city of Asia at the time showed such a contrast between the present decay and its past splendor. So the Sardinians often would comment, remember the good old days. It wasn't really that Sardis had compromised itself. Some of the other cities we've talked about in the series, we've had these cities that just together have really compromised themselves. They've chosen, chosen a wrong direction or they've paid attention to false teaching. Sardis really hadn't, hadn't done that, hadn't compromised itself. The problem is that Sardis really hadn't done anything at all. They were lazy. And this can be illustrated really well in the fact that Sardis sat on top of a high mountain. And three sides of this mountain had perpendicular cliffs, straight up. And the Sardinians thought, we don't need to watch those cliffs because there's nobody that could climb them. So they put guards everywhere else, but not on these three sides with these straight up and down cliffs. And twice, not once, but twice, Sardis was captured by its enemies because no one was guarding the cliffs. Sardis really just hadn't done anything at all. They were overconfident. Is there anything that you're overconfident in? Something that you should be guarding yourself against that you're not? Is there an enemy scaling cliffs in your heart or in your life right now that you should be watching for, but you're choosing to let it go because it's easier to let it go? Enemies climb the cliffs, so be cautious and be careful. Do not be lazy. Guard your hearts. At one point, the city and the church in Sardis had been thriving, and its past deeds gave it a reputation for being alive. And that's what our scripture says this morning. This letter from Jesus says, I know your reputation says that you are alive, but I know that in reality, you are dead. They claim to be a healthy Christian church, but Jesus knows that they're not even alive anymore. So it begs the question, we have to ask the question here and now today, what makes a church look alive on the outside, but in reality may be dead on the inside? And if we're not asking that question, we might be missing the point of this entire passage. Ray Vanderland, maybe you guys have heard his name before. He's an evangelist. He, uh, he, has, he takes trips to the Holy Land, and he's got youth and their parents with, with him, and he explains kind of what happened historically in the areas that he's at. One of the things he said, he, he said, your church programs are so successful. Attendance increases. Your offerings are way up. Sunday school attendance is increasing so that you can't put any more stars on the attendance board. Your building program is ahead of schedule and you're happy with where you are. Is it possible that on the outside it could look like everything is going your way, everything is going well, but on the inside something is missing? But we keep score of the very things that Ray Vanderland is talking about. We keep score of our attendance and our building programs. We keep score of our Sunday school. But maybe it's time that we change the scorecard. Maybe it's time we don't keep track of those things anymore. We've often thought of a successful church 
being measured by nickels and noses. Have you ever heard that? Nickels and noses. Nickels is how much is in the offering plate. Noses is how many people are there on a Sunday morning. Nickels and noses. That's a silly scorecard. But we buy into it. Because if people ask you, how's your church? What's it like? How many people come? It's one of the first questions we ask. Because that's how we keep track. That's what we keep score of. And the, the silly thing about it is that there are churches who are far smaller than us, who have far less in the offering plate, who are far healthier than we are. And there are churches who are far bigger than us with far more in the offering plate who are far less healthy than we are. Nickels and noses is a silly, silly scorecard. But if that's what we measure, then that's what we're going to see. If that's what we're looking for is giving us a test to see if this church is doing well or this church is healthy, then that's all we're ever going to see. Reggie McNeil wrote a book a few years ago called Missional Renaissance. And he suggested that we don't measure church based on attendance or programs or number of people that we measure churches based on how well we help people grow. Imagine that. How well we help people grow. What if somebody asked you how your church is doing, and they said, well, how big is it? And you said, I have no idea, but let me tell you the story about this thing that I heard last Sunday, about this person in our church who we've walked with consistently week after week, and look at where they are now. We celebrated this growth Aspect. What if we actually measured church by the way that people grow? Reggie McNeil suggests that we celebrate investments in people and we cheer the breakthroughs in their life. Amen. Cheer the breakthroughs in their life. We need churches that support people development, that support people growth. And it's so easy to come to church on a Sunday morning and look around and think to yourself, oh, there are less people here this week than last week? What, what are we doing wrong? Other churches have 300 or 400 or 500 people, and we, we average 120. What are we doing wrong? What are we missing? But that is an earthly measuring tape. That's nickels and noses. It's what we can see and touch and feel. There are times in the Bible when the crowds that followed Jesus would get so big that Jesus would on purpose dwindle the crowd down. It seemed like Jesus wasn't focused on numbers. The bigger the crowd got, the more time he spent away. The bigger the crowd got, the harder it was that he preached hard things. But Jesus took time to sit with people. He sat with children and told them stories. He welcomed them over when people tried to get in the way. He said, don't you get in the way of those children coming to me. He washed his disciples' feet. He taught them how to pray. He sat with them. For Jesus, it was all about people. People development. A person's growth. And we don't measure that. We don't look for that. We look at what's on the outside, and that's how we measure people, and that's how we measure church, and we're missing something if we don't look past what's on the outside. Take a look at verse 3 with me this morning. It says, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent, but if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. God talks about coming 
like a thief. When I read this passage preparing for the sermon this morning, it made me think of a parable that Jesus told about ten virgins. Maybe you can remember this. If you want to read it this morning, it's in Matthew 25, starts at verse 1. So feel free to flip there if you want. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you. I'm going to kind of give a summation of it. In this parable, Christ says, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. And in this parable that he tells, there are ten virgins who are waiting for the groom to come. And five of them are foolish. Because they think they've prepared themselves. They think they've gotten ready and they realize they're not. So they leave to go prepare. And there are five virgins who were ready. They took the time to actually do what it took to prepare. And the groom comes while the first five are gone. But the five who remain, the five who were prepared, they join the groom for a marriage feast. The foolish virgins were left behind. You see, the groom is is God or Jesus, and we are those who are waiting. There's an English theologian named R.T. France, and he says that this parable is a warning addressed specifically to those who are on the inside to assume that their future is not unconditionally assured. A warning addressed to those who are on the inside. Well, that's scary. That's me. That's us. Ah, Nick, but how can you say that there are some people in church whose future isn't assured? Honestly? Because there are too many instances in this book. There are too many instances in this story that we read every single week. Too many instances where people think that they were golden and they find out they're not. Think about the Pharisees or the Sadducees. Think about the rich man. Think about the disciple Peter, the older brother of the prodigal son who always stuck around, but his heart was wrong. There are so many times that those who are on the inside think they get it, and it turns out they have misunderstood it all along. It is up to us. Whether we are old or young, whether we are a new Christian or we've been a Christian since we were six, we need to spend every day reaching for Jesus. And I don't say this to scare you. I'm not into making you fearful. I'm saying this to encourage you to every day reach for Jesus. Every day seek him. Don't think you you have it all figured out. Don't rest on your laurels. Don't think about the good old days when you used to have Bible study or men's group or whatever. Make it about today, about this moment. Be present today. Seek Jesus now. Look at verse 4. It says, You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. This is a comment that the Sardinians would understand in a way that you and I don't. I've said it, and I'm sure that in your head you've agreed with it. We are concerned with the outside appearance. We have sayings in our culture like, don't judge a book by its cover. We say that because we do. We judge a book by its cover, right? The latest music album that comes out, you look at the cover. Do I want to buy it? I don't know. But the cover looks cool, so I'll buy it, right? We literally judge things by their cover. That's why we have that saying. The Sardinians also do this very same thing because they would have this garment business, and it was such a big deal, they walked around in these white robes. 
And if anybody got their white robes dirty, if they walked around in soiled garments, their name could be removed from the list of citizens. If they wore dirty clothes, they could literally lose their citizenship. Talk about a culture who are paying attention to the outside. My fear for us is that there are those among us who, who believe that our garments are clean. But they aren't. My fear is that we have forced ourselves to do right, to make the right decision with every single turn, but we've never really understood why. We don't really get what being a Christian is all about. We never got past the rules. All we remember is the rules. I can do this. I can't do this. I stay on this path. I'm supposed to be good. Matt Chandler is a pastor at a church in Texas, and he says this. Men and women grow up in the church are taught morality. They went to VBS growing up, and they know that God hates liars because they sang a song about it. They know that true love waits. They know there's not supposed to drink and cuss. Oh, in any R-rated movie that's not about the crucifixion they shouldn't see, it ends up being a bunch of do's and don'ts. He says, at best, this is moralistic deism, making morality your God. And it doesn't transform your heart. So then we have people that walk away from the church. We have generations who are walking away from the church because they have tried so desperately to follow all the rules with their jaws set and their fists clenched, trying so hard to do everything right. But why? Why are they trying so hard? Because that's what they were told. You have to do these things and these things and these things. They were not told why. They, a love of Jesus never worked its way into their heart. It's just been about rules. So we accomplish these insane moralistic feats. We follow some of these rules, not because we want to, not because Jesus changed our heart, but because we're supposed to. So we white-knuckle our faith. And we accomplish these feats, and then something bad happens in our life. Our parents get divorced, or our friend gets cancer, or we, we lose our job. And our mindset becomes, God, I was good. I followed all these rules. I did this and this and this. And this is how you repay me, God? God, you owe me. As the church, as Kanoi, as the church in America, whatever, as the church, we need to be asking ourselves, are we teaching people to love God or to obey rules? Are we teaching people to enter into a relationship with Jesus or just follow a bunch of predetermined things that will make you a good person? Amen. Why do you follow the rules? When you walk out these doors today and you choose not to engage in gossip, or you see somebody stopped alongside the road with a flat tire and you stop, or somebody comes up to you with a need and you say, you know what, I can meet that need. Why do you do that? Why do you live in that way? Is it because someone might be watching? Is it because that's just what you were taught? Or is it because deep down in your heart, Jesus has reshaped this thing and made it all about him? If we follow Christ, then our hearts should be transformed. And if we follow rules, 
all we do is conform. Let's not be a church that conforms. Let's not be a church that conforms. Let's be transformed. And as Jesus continues to shape our hearts, we will continue to be transformed into his likeness, into his loveliness, into his children, rather than simply following a bunch of rules. Are we following Jesus? Because like the Sardinians... Jesus comes to them and says, you have works that have not been completed. I've seen your works and they don't measure up. Because when Jesus looks, he doesn't see that you stop beside the road to help the person with the flat tire. He sees the heart with which you stopped to help the person with the flat tire. So while I may see you stop, I might think, man, that's awesome. What a great person. Jesus knows if your heart is doing that because of him or if you're doing it because you're just trying to look like you got the white garments on. Friends, what good are white garments if what is underneath is dirty and soiled and rotten? Join me. Let us not cover this stuff up anymore. Let us go to God with it. Let us lay it before his feet. Let him transform who we are and change our hearts so that we may follow him for real. And not just because we were told to, not just because people expect us to. Let us not show up on this place on a Sunday morning to consume whatever we can get. Let us be here for one another. Let us be here for God. When we sing these worship songs, let us stand and actually sing these songs because we love Jesus, not just because the people next to us are standing. That is not the point, and we're missing it. Verse 5 says, to those who overcome will be dressed in white, and their name will never be blotted out from the book of life. The Sardinians understand this in such a special way, because if their garments are dirty, their name is off the book. They lose their citizenship. And what does Jesus promise? He promises permanent citizenship. Permanent And sometimes I don't think we quite get how amazing these promises are at the end of these letters. Jesus promises us a permanent relationship. No one can wipe your name off. You are with him forever. To those who overcome, I will dress you in white. Earlier he said, I'll give you a new name. If we follow him, we are renewed and we are a new creation. God makes all things new and our name is in the book of life forever and ever and ever. This morning, we're going to take communion. We are partaking in a beautiful tradition that is 2,000 years old. Christians for generations have laid down their lives so that you and I can have this expression this morning. In places where no one would allow it, in a world where they were turned in by other religions, by their very neighbors, where the government was trying to stop them from doing this very thing, they have forsaken everything they have given their lives so that you and I can come this morning and partake in this thing and remember what Jesus did for us. That is the point. That is why we are here, to remember what Christ did for us this morning. He paid The ultimate price. We sang a song about it already. He died on a tree for us so that we could have clean garments, so that we could be made whole, so that he could dress us in white and our name would be on the book of life 
forever. And for anyone who is there this morning sitting here going, I don't even know if it's real for me, I'm telling you right now that he is offering you a chance. He's offering you life, life eternal. This morning, to end the sermon, but to transition into communion, I want to take a time of just silence, of personal prayer, of time for us to just consider, are the garments clean or are they dirty? Am I just following rules or am I being transformed? To take this table seriously, because I can guarantee you that when Jesus hung on a cross, when Jesus broke bread in an upper room and said, do this in remembrance of me, he took it seriously. Those disciples took it seriously. And we want to take the time this morning to invest and look deep inside and go, okay, God, is there anything I just need to lay at your feet? Is there anything? Because we want to take hold of the promise. Sardis leaves us a promise that not only will we walk with Jesus, but we'll be dressed in clean white garments and our name is in the book of life forever. And that is a promise that we can take to the bank every day. So I want to invite you to bow your heads in a moment of personal prayer and then I will close us in prayer. Father God, we do thank you for today. We come before you now. As we enter into communion, God, we just, we lay things at your feet. The things that we're struggling with, the things that we're worried about, the things that we, we don't even know what to do with them. We lay them at your feet. God, we don't know what to say sometimes, but you've told us that when we don't know what to say, your Holy Spirit groans on our behalf. And so God, for those of us who sit here and it just feels like the whole weight of the world is on us in this moment, we let your Holy Spirit pray on our behalf. God, we, we thank you for this offer of life, for this offer of clean garments that you've given us. And I pray that we would each be filled with whatever we need. May it be peace, may it be encouragement, may it be strength, may it be courage to step out and take that life that you offer. Be with our hearts in this time of worship. Be with our hearts in this time of remembering what you gave. In our Father's name. Hi, this is Pastor Nick. Thanks for listening. I hope something that you heard today was very helpful. If you want to connect with us further, feel free to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, or our website, kanoichurch.org. Sure, I'm glad we're in this together. Thank you.